Hi, this is Bob Lark, and you're listening to Back to the Bins. <laughs> Everybody ready? You guys ready to go? Yeah, I think so. So mm-hmm. might as well bring this in and start rolling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Bill Robinson. Say hello, Doc. Hello, Doc. And we are once again joined. It's a much delayed, much effort put into trying to find a, a time when our schedules match. But we're met, we're once again joined by Adam Murdo and Chris Eberly from uh, Comic Geek Speak. Welcome aboard, guys. Gentlemen, thanks for having us on. I look forward to this every year. <laughs> every year? <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it every year, too, but it seems like we only get to do it every other year. <laughs> Iennium, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we tried it. I think we've been trying to come up with a mutual date where everybody was available for about a year now. Yes. So, you know, unfortunately, life gets in the way for a lot of us. Some of us get very busy around Christmas time. Some of us get very busy around school time, and some of us are just busy all year round. So, what can you sure. do? But uh, but I'm really happy to have you guys back again. I, uh, you know, it it's a weird thing when you're a listener, though. You don't you never feel like you're that far away because I get to hear you guys about once a week anyway. So it's it's almost uh-huh. like you come to visit every now and again. Thank thank you for listening. I really appreciate that. Well, it's all, it's, it's definitely we can interact directly instead of just you know talking to ourselves. Instead of me just <laughs> instead of me just yelling at my iPod as you're talking. <laughs> uh-huh. No, it's it, you know I, I I don't think there's anybody who listens to this show who is unfamiliar with Comic Geek Speak. I think you know that's that's just a given that they know you know where you guys come from and everything. So I don't even think I have to worry about giving you a plug. Uh, if anything, when you simultaneously air this on your network that's when we get the plug so and i thank you guys for doing that be sure sure to mention this in our next episode as well you bet so any anything uh just you know just to go into the the plug area a little bit is there anything that you guys have coming up any any new uh you know focus episodes or anything well i'm always working on uh New spotlight episodes. It's been, because of things going on in my life. It's been difficult to focus on them the past several months. But I have one I, I'm about two thirds done with, and then I have a, a couple more I'm planning for the summer. So hopefully I can get back on track with that. The last one, unless I'm mistaken, I guess the last one was Jack Kirby. And yeah, we did the two part Kirby in, in, in the, the, this past summer. That was so, awesome. That was, yeah, that was a great listen. I appreciate that. Um, and Merb was a vital, uh, vital co-pilot on that one, as always. So, and then we always get the time bubble too. So, yep. from time to time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget uh, your latest brainchild, Chris. Uh, CGS goes to war. Oh, yes. that sounds interesting. Yeah, that was the well. We did that a couple episodes back, where we Merb and I talked about two war comics. And uh, it's something we want to return to now and then. And, and some listeners in the forum made a, a good point of why we could also do that, like CGS Horror or CGS Western. So we may try a couple different formats because we certainly love talking about back issues. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I saw the war issue yet or listened to a war episode. I don't think I've listened to the war episode yet. 
some things get lost in the in the iPod that they just fall lower on the list and I don't find them. But uh, I'm gonna have to yeah. listen to that. I I am not an avid war comic reader, but I did always enjoy them in the day, so I'm sure I'll enjoy listening to the episode. We know uh, Dave Pasquarello will listen because we know he collects the war comics. Oh yeah, and then we just recently uh, we did an episode where we fought, we we actually had oh, yeah. two war war issues. <laughs> One of them was uh, the final issue of Combat Kelly. Yeah, which we kind of ripped that up. Which was amusing in how bad it was. <laughs> uh, but we also did a series. I wonder if you guys are familiar with it at all. It's called Dreamer. It's it's an online series. No, I've never read that. And uh, it, it, we we did one one issue of it, uh, and it's about a girl, a current day girl, who I guess when she goes to sleep, she starts to relive the Revolutionary War with the people there. Oh wow! And it's got the two stories going on simultaneously, uh, and and it and, was the uh, artwork. Was Alan really, Hale was no wait. Was it Alan Hale? No wait. No, am it's, I getting uh, no it's not Alan Hale. Was, uh, <laughs> Alan was, was, was well, Alan Hale Junior was the skipper, and Alan Hale Senior was the was Little John in Robin Hood. Uh, it was something Hale. I can't. Nathan read Hale. Nathan Hale. See, there was the right amount of letters. Okay, maybe not. But maybe. <laughs> There's the right amount of letters, Alan and Nathan. There's an A and an N in there. There's, there's two A's in common, yeah. Oh, my God. Whatever. <laughs> Don't make yeah. fun of me in front of guests. Why do you do this to me? You know, it's like we're a married couple. I, I asked you not to do this before the show. I can't believe this. <laughs> I do feel like I'm married again. All right. Anyway, uh, so we, we have uh, three books between us. So Chris bought a book. Adam brought a book. I have a book. Bill? <laughs> no, I don't have a book. I'm bookless Bill again. <laughs> and as, as a general rule, when we have guests on, I let the guests decide what order you want to go in on the books. If you want, you, you know, whatever you guys would, would, you know, whatever order you prefer is fine with me. Well, what I, what I was just talking to Mer before we got on the air, that I love how we each, we each did a Marvel book from a different era. So... Paul, yours from the 1970s, mine is the 80s, and murder is the 90s. So, Paul, I think you should go first. All right, that works for me. Uh, I chose Marvel Spotlight number 12, which I've had in my collection. So I, I guess I, it was probably it probably came out shortly before I started collecting, but I had gotten it not too long afterwards. So I've had it in my collection for you know, 40 some odd years. And I probably haven't read it since it was, you know, new to my collection. And re reading it again last night, it was kind of interesting. Uh, it's Marvel Spotlight number 12, which uh, has a cover date of October 1973. I guess that mean it means it probably came out around July of 73. The cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it shows the Son of Satan. And if anybody's not familiar with the character of the Son of Satan, he's shirtless with a red cape. He's got reddish blonde hair with the front of it in two horns. He's got a birthmark that looks like a tattoo of a pentagram on his chest. He wears red tights, yellow boots, and a yellow belt. And uh, he's riding a flaming chariot uh, drawn by uh, flaming horses away from the reader. Uh, he's holding a woman around the waist as he, as he calls out, You rose against me, all of you, now you'll pay. There's a uh, panicking man to the side who says, stop him, he, he ain't human. And it says, from hell he came. Uh, 
this just to, to comment on this before I even get into the book is I think this is about as good as we get with Herb Trimpey. I, I've always had a fondness for his artwork. There's sometimes it's better than others, but I think this is as dynamic and high quality as, as I'm going to find from him. The story is titled, of all things, The Son of Satan. It's written by Gary Friedrich, penciled by Herb Trimpey, inked by Frank Cheramanti, lettered by John Costanza, colored by, it's, it just says colored by Severin. I'm assuming that's Marie and not John, that's but I don't know for sure. It's almost definitely Marie, because one of her many bullpen duties was to act as a colorist. So, there we go. And uh, it is edited by Roy Thomas. The story opens with a man pounding on a door with his wrists locked together with a chain of anks. He promises to save his captor's daughter, which is enough to get the captor to release him. And upon release, he transforms into his son of Satan persona. He states that by day he is puny, religious, weakling Damien Hellstrom, enemy of his father, but by night his true heritage takes control and he becomes his father's son, which is kind of inconsistent throughout the story because sometimes he seems to be his father's son and more often he seems to be his father's enemy. The, the two men who released him quickly have second thoughts, but they're subdued by him. Despite that, they're not willing or they are willing to allow him to kill them rather than tell them where the girl he promised to save is. He promises that he won't harm her, but seeks Satan, who is possessing her at this time. They're convinced rather easily, and one of the men's one of the men tells him that the girl, her name is Linda, seemed to be possessed and vanished as he was seeking help for her. Hellstrom waves his trident, causing a storm from which his demon-drawn chariot appears. He takes his leave on the chariot as the men exposit on the fear of having unleashed something terrible on the world. Several miles away, Roxanne Simpson, the main squeeze of Johnny Blaze the Ghost Rider, is being terrorized by some cyclists until they are confronted by Hellstrom. He makes quick work of the gang and even uses his Hellfire to melt a gun. Hellfire, uh, Hellstrom talks in a real creepy way, uh, kind of, you know, kind of looks like he's going to rape her as he's addressing her, but then gets a bit rough and he questions her. Once she gives him some information, he lowers her into the desert and makes his way to a plateau where he makes his way to the gateway to hell. He reaches a throne room where he confronts his father, who has the girl, Linda, and Johnny Blaze as his captives. Hellstrom openly mocks his father, saying that he's getting old and pointing out that his trident is made of netheranium, the one substance that can sap his power. In response, the devil sets a, a slew of demon minions on Hellstrom. Hellstrom fights them off and decides to destroy a bridge that would cause hell to fall. He makes his way to the bridge and has demons coming to, towards him on either side. He holds his trident high, but agrees to not destroy the bridge if the two hostages are released. As they leave, he tells Johnny that he only did what he did to spite his father. And as they leave, Satan causes a nearby volcano to erupt. But Damien calls his chariot to them. He takes them to the desert and leaves them and thinks to himself that he will return in his human form to them. Now, I thought this was kind of cool in a lot of ways. One of the things is, you know, just considering at the time this came out, 
you know, what, what hold the Comics Code Authority had, what they were allowing, because I know, you know, at this point they were allowing things that they hadn't done in the past, and that's when Marvel could do all these monster books. Uh, but this still seems to be a pretty bold step for them to actually have the Son of Satan. Uh, and it, it, initially, unless I'm mistaken, and Chris, you, you know, you're the historian, so you may know better than me. Uh, initially, his father is Satan. And then later on, that's kind of retcom to have him be you know, one of the that's demons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point, he is he's literally the son of Satan. So, it, I mean, that's I think that's a pretty bold move. Although he says, you know, he just did what he did to spite his father and yet wouldn't destroying that bridge and 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 causing hell to fall actually be a more, you know, a bigger blow to his father than just releasing his two prisoners. So I, I don't know about that as far as logic goes. Uh, but I am very curious as to what each of you guys thought of this book. Uh, Murray, mind if I go first? Uh, absolutely, because I haven't read this book. All right. <laughs> uh, Paul, I love that you chose this because this period of Marvel – I, I so groove on because in so, in so many ways it's so ridiculous and over the top. Um, as you said, so this is the early 70s. So this is what – when you read about Marvel history, this is what they call phase two, and you know, this is when Roy Thomas becomes the editor-in-chief. And as you mentioned, they had liberalized the code after the legendary Spider-Man drug issues, uh, issues 96 through 98, and now they could use supernatural characters, horror characters – um, hence, you have the, the, the deluge of uh, Marvel monster characters. Some are I mean, uh, 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 characters who have, who have no copyright protection, like Dracula. They can use monster Frankenstein, werewolf, etc. And uh, we actually did a spotlight episode of the Marvel monsters back in 2013. And uh, as part of that research, Murder and I, you know, dug into the Son of Satan. And what's really interesting, and, and you, you touched upon this as well. Is that when they were, Stan Lee was just a font of, of, of ideas, like he'd tell Roy Thomas, you know, do this, do that. And one of them was, let's do a book about the devil. And, and, uh, Roy Thomas, cause I read an interview with him, he said, well, Stan is, you know, we might get, you know, friction on that from, you know, religious groups, etc. He said, why don't we do a book about the son of the devil? And Stan's like, great! So, you know, they did the son of Satan. And as you mentioned, originally this was supposed to be the actual Satan. And then as the years passed, Marvel must have realized, well, maybe we don't want to, you know, be pigeonholed by saying like we're actually this is actually the devil. You know, this guy with like a flaming body and like his bones, his skull scepter. So they, they said that like it was a, it was a, a lesser demon masquerading as Satan. Um, and the, this book for me is such the essence of early Bronze Age comics. You got the motorcycle gang, you know, with wearing the the, the Wehrmacht helmets and you know the the gang leader's named Big Daddy. And, and, and as all gang leaders were in comics of that era, he had to be wearing a vest with nothing under it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no shirt, just a vest. Uh, excellent point. <laughs> We've got you know the crossover with Johnny Blaze, Ghost Rider. Um, you know, it's Gary Friedrichs writing this, so it's very much in that Bronze Age style. And I'm interested in what you th- think, Paul, having revisited this after so many years, how differently comics were written back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, of the old style where, where they're, they're describing a lot of the action to you in captions. You get thought balloons. But, you know, compared to comics today, that's, for some people might find this very wordy. Um, what was your reaction to that, reading it again after all these years? Oh, you know what? The, the Bronze Age is my sweet spot. And, I, you know, they always say that when you're, you know, somewhere between like 10 and 15, that's when you develop, you know, what you're exposed to then is the tastes that you're going to carry with you the rest of your life. 
So this, the Bronze Age is totally my sweet spot, and those are the comics that I still prefer. Uh, I, I bemoan the loss of Thought Bubbles. Oh, me too. I, I think that they were a terrific tool to give you exposition without having to pe- have people sound stupid as they were saying things, because they could just think stupid things <laughs> instead of saying them. Uh, mm. So I, I, I think that doing away with them was a mistake. And the only time I've seen anybody try and bring them back in the last, whatever, 15 years or so was when Brian Bendis did it. But he did it more for comic effect than for storytelling. Yeah, and I, I, I limit them as well because when you think about it, I, I don't think Spider-Man would be the character he is today without all the thought balloons because mm-hmm. all all the – you know his, his agony, his angst, his, his humor, so much of that was in those thought balloons, and, and, and I agree that that's very much missed. And I, I concur. I, I love this style. I mean some writers I think are more adept at it than others back then, but uh, the Her- Herb Trimpey is always one of my favorite artists. I actually had the, the good fortune to meet him not long before he passed away at a show. And I, I commissioned a sketch that of Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe, uh, which I treasure. And uh, what, what a gentleman. I, nice I, I can say the same thing. What, what I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, just, just, just well, you know, reminiscing about Herb a little bit. Back in the 70s when he was doing The Hulk, uh, I had written not only to him, I had written to several people, but I had written him a letter when I was, you know, whatever, 12 years old, telling him how much I enjoyed his work and asking him for an autograph. And he sent me a postcard you know, to Paul, best wishes, Herb Trimpey, with a, I mean, the tiniest of thumbnail sketches of the Hulk on it. Oh, fantastic. And then I managed to meet Herb again in about, I guess it was probably about 2013 at New York Comic Con. And I had the, for, the, the, the thought beforehand, I actually brought what he, gave, what he sent me with me. So I showed it to him. And he, he was, you could see, he... he opened up into a huge grin. He got a big kick out of it. Uh, <laughs> but then I commissioned a, a head sketch of the Hulk from him at that show. And, and I agree with you totally. He is an absolute gentleman. We took a picture together holding, holding the sketch that he had done for me. And I, you know, I talked to him for about 15, 20 minutes and he was just absolutely a pleasure. I, I, I had the same experience. Um, but it's, I've always loved his artwork and I agree. I mean, I think some of his most dynamic artwork is actually some of the Ant-Man stories he did uh, in Marvel, Marvel Feature in the 1970s. I'm sorry, Murray, were you going to say something? Uh, no. Oh, very well. Um, but uh, I, I always loved his work on the Hulk, G.I. Joe, everything he did. And such dynamic scenes in this book, the, 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 the half-splash page where they show uh, Damien Hellstrom fighting off all the, the horde of satanic minions – uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the underworld, beautiful artwork by Trimpey. Uh, what I found most interesting, though, in this issue, A, the, the page you referenced where he's – I'll read it here. He says, now at last we can talk, my dear. You are very beautiful, and I pity the fact that I haven't time to linger with you and perhaps whisper words of love into your ear. Your golden hair is most intriguing, so soft, so shimmering in the pale moonlight. Only rarely have I beheld such loveliness, but for now, a mere touch is all time allows me. Then he pulls her hair back. (laughs) End of business. But that uh, shot where he's pulling the hair back, that looks very much like when you see a scene like that in a movie. I think he really did capture the essence of that violence in that shot. Yeah, but this page just reminds me of, you know... It's the 70s. It's the early 70s. Um, you know, you would never see this in a comic today, probably in this kind of context. Um, it's full of machismo. 
Yes, and, and, and again, it also reminds us – and I want to get Murd's thoughts on this. Murd, isn't Damien Hellstrom always been portrayed as a very ambiguous character, not really necessarily always a heroic character? Uh, yes, and that uh, needle of ambiguity swung much more towards the uh, uh, villainous or diabolical of, uh, in the 90s. Back when that's they did Hellstorm, that series? Prince of Lies, yes. Uh, part of it written by Warren Ellis. Yeah, I've never sat down and read that one, but I know, you know, I know of it. I, I pretty much stopped following his character after he was done in The Defenders. Because that was when he was more a little bit on the heroic side when he was in The Defenders, wasn't he? Yes. I remember correctly. Well, at that point, he was, he, you know, whatever his story arc was within The Defenders, if I'm remembering it correctly, he was trying to free himself of the curse of his heritage. And I seem to remember towards the end, he was able to do so, and that's when he married Patsy Walker. And, you know, at least, as as is always the case, it never really ends that way because they always come back and they have to create something new. But at that time, it was, and they lived happily ever after. But, of course, they didn't because I think she took her life at some point after that. I think she took her life, and then he had to go down to hell to rescue her soul. And she, she I think she was brought back to life, but they were divorced. Yeah, you know, they, they always have to bring them back and, and and eliminate the and they lived happily ever after. Just I'm like sorry, it, Mer, you, I'm sorry, Mer, what did you just say? I was saying that uh, uh, Hellstrom had to trick the Thunderbolts into going down and rescuing her. They thought they were bringing Hawkeye's wife Mockingbird back from the dead, but it was Patsy Walker instead. That's what it was. Okay, yeah. Mm. Thanks, Mer. Mer, that's why you are clutch, brother. Outstanding. Yeah, yeah we, you know we, we're not planning on having a muddled Mer here today. <laughs> but 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 you've you've already acquitted yourself fine. <laughs> we could have a befuddle the bill, but that happens every show. <laughs> uh, but this is a great selection, Paul. It's it's such a wonderful time capsule of a certain like I love early seventies Marvel, the monster books. I eat that stuff up. Uh, I mean, to me, Tomb of Dracula is at, is at the apex when it comes to the the creativity of the of that period for Marvel. Um, and this this is a bizarre character in many ways. It, it, it's the, the the look of it, everything. Um, it's so funky in, in a way and, and, and absurd, but uh, it, it works. And also just him in, in conflict about, you know, cause he, he, he kind of leaves Johnny Blaze in the desert at the end, abandons him and, you know. What a douche. He, yeah, he's not, he's not, it's not like, and he's struggling with himself because he sees his, his, his human alter ego as like a weakling. And uh, it's interesting that that character, this character has sort of evolved and, and, and changed over the years, so. Great yeah, I found, I found it amusing that he's almost, you know, there's almost a Bruce Banner Hulk thing, you know. During the yeah. day, I'm puny Damien Hellstrom. Uh, now, you know, what, what I saw uh, on it was the character as suggested by Stan Lee, the title of the series was going to be The Mark of Satan. That's correct. And that they changed it to The Son of Satan. But uh, one of the things I read that I thought was interesting, and, and I think it does go to what a gentleman Herb Trimpey was, is that he and Gary, Gary Friedrich are credited with creating the character. And when they interviewed Herb about it, he said, no, Gary had planned everything out and had it all done. All I did was draw you know, what he told me. So he, he didn't take any credit for it, even though they were handing it to him on a uh, silver platter. Well, that's, again, that speaks volumes about him. I mean, Gary Friedrich's one of the, the sort of the sadder creator stories in, in, in the American co- history of the American comic book. Um, you know, he, he, he did a tremendous interview in um, – the original volume of the Great Tomorrow's publication, comic book artist. I forgot the issue number, but he talks very candidly about his entire life, his alcoholism, um, his, his personal struggles, but also working in the Marvel bullpen in the late 60s and early 70s and what that was like. And 
it's it's a, it's a fascinating interview. Um, so tomorrow's is just a yeah. treasure trove of good good, good reading. I, I just wish there were enough hours in the day for me to read it all. Amen I, to that. I, and I did get the Herb Trimpey book from them. Which, I have it too. I have it right on my shelf here. In fact, I, I'm using it right now as research for a forthcoming spotlight. That's oh, all I'll okay. say on that. Something to look forward to there. Bill, did you get a chance to read this? Yeah, and also I noticed um, while we've been talking, um, I've been looking at some images of Hellstrom because I picked up in this book that the pentagram on his chest is, um, I don't, well, it's it's usually certain iconography. It would be upside, the star would be upside down, but in this comic, it's right side up. And I'm looking at, it seems like even with his first uh, solo series, it switched to being upside down. I wonder if there was a code thing. They were afraid to show it in the, in the you know, the star pointing down instead of uh, the way it is here. Did you guys catch that by chance? Oh, that's a great catch on your part, Bill. Yeah, I, I had not seen that, but that is a good catch. Yeah, because it's 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 right side up, which normally, you know, with all the, I you know, the icons, it would be the other way, but here, and uh, what was it like? Like his first solo series, it was flipped. Do you know, in like in devil worship lore, because <laughs> we're all very well versed in that. But do you do you know like what the significance of it being upside down would be? I believe the right side up is well. I, I sound like such a loser, but let me go on. So <laughs> upside down, supposedly that's you know evil. Right side up is good witches now i'm getting this based from tv and books and other things so i'm, I'm not that heavily in into witchcraft to know i mean that's just the way i've always interpreted it is that the way it is on his chest there would be he'd be a good witch <laughs> i'm a good witch or a a good devil perhaps and then the other way upside down with the upside down star then it would be evil but uh, I, maybe they couldn't do it because the code uh they were afraid perhaps i i like reading through it I was a little confused by what they, what message they were trying to give you as to his, the nature of his personality. Uh, and I think, it, you know, it, it could well have been intentional because they talk about him at night turning into, you know, being like his father. But then throughout it, he's but hating his father. Yeah, but tr throughout it, he's fighting against his father. So I'm not really sure, like, where they were going with that. They're just uh, trying to skirt that edge. I wanted to point out, by the way, that. Because I've got it from my library, that comic book artist is issue 13, cover date May 2001. Not only is there a tremendous interview with Gary Friedrich, but it, the whole com, the whole magazine is dedicated to the Marvel monsters of the 1970s. The whole magazine, it's phenomenal. Now I wanted to touch a little bit on the monsters because you mentioned them, and I just you know over the course of this show we've done a fair number of monster books, and I'm certainly enjoying those uh, to the point where I've you know I. I've, very rarely pick up any more books from my collection. In fact, I'm trying to get rid of some to make space. But my Bronze Age stuff is kind of, you know, that's set in stone. I'm not getting rid of any of that. Uh, I think one of the most underrated series, and it was very short-lived, but I think The uh, Living Mummy was one of the most underrated series that oh, they did. Murder can, can speak to that. Huh. I can't. <laughs> Oh, you love the you love the living mummy. I do. Uh, I love the idea of him. I haven't read any of his appearances. I, I own his first appearance from Marvel Chillers, but it's somewhere in the pile, and I haven't read it. Yeah, we we did a we did our monster spotlight. We Murder and I did a little a little uh, part of portion that was dedicated to the living mummy. 
Um, mm. Fascinating character. The whole history behind him, and uh, one of the, one of the first uh, an early African American character actually in comics, essentially. Oh well, yeah. Afri- just just plain old African. Yeah, actually, yeah. Well, but the, you know what the the, the Mummy character eventually made its way to America, so I guess that would make him African American at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's stretching the definition a little. I know. Indeed, uh, but uh, no, Paul. That whole that whole era of Marvel is it, I, I just eat it up. Man Thing by Gerber and Mike Plug is amazing. Mm-hmm. Werewolf by Night, uh, you know, Doug Monk. Uh, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, Plug, Pl- Mike Plug is all over this period. Uh, yes. Monster Frankenstein, he did with Gary Friedrich. I mean, the, to, to me again, the, the, the sort of the Mac Daddy of all that is, is the Tomb of Dracula by Wolfman, Colin, and, and Tom Palmer, um, which is just visually, you know, some of the greatest work I think of Gene Colan's career, and the stories are, are, are just a cut above. Um, were, there, were there any issues of that series that were not drawn by Colan? He drew every issue, all seven. Phenomenal. I mean, he had. There were some, a couple different writers in the first few issues and a couple different anchors, but once it, it was the Colin Palmer team settled in, that's what you got for the rest of the decade. It was great so. stuff. And this, you know, like you know, I think we're in agreement that it's just, uh, you know, it's just fun to read these these Bronze Age monster books. And there was a certain, for lack of a better word, innocence about them that they were. You know, they they were presented in a very straightforward manner for the most part. Uh, I don't know if I'm articulating it well enough, but they they were very accessible, even if you're not a horror fan, is what I'm more or less thinking. Well, be, because no, you're, I couldn't agree more because you know it, it's the Marvel approach, so it, it's it's driven by characters. Um, so you know they still had the supporting cast they even they even had some soap soap operatic elements i mean all the things that made marvel so captivating to people in, in the silver and bronze age and uh you know they they brought that to the to the monster characters too and that's why um, why i think those books are so accessible i couldn't agree more and just just the last thought on the monsters in general is you know back in the 70s when i was reading this i had no idea that jack russell was actually the name was was the name of a canine yes it's, you know, now, now that I know that, I have a tough time. I didn't know that then either, yeah. But when I, when I read them, it was just, you know, that's a name. That's all. I had no clue. Uh, so I guess, I guess we should probably rate this one, and usually we let the person who synopsizes it go first, so I will. Uh, I think that the that this is, as like I said, pretty much as good of a Herb Trimpey cover as you're going to find. Uh, I think the choice of the angle that they show him moving at is slightly different than what would be conventional. I think conventional would be to have him heading straight towards the reader, and then I guess you'd have the horses kind of lower and him higher so that you could get him right in the center of the page, almost make it a poster image. So this is a little different because he's off to the side. He's heading away from the reader. Uh, He looks threatening. The cover looks dynamic. Uh, I can't imagine seeing this as a kid and not wanting to pick it up. And So in my opinion, this is an absolutely an A cover. The interior art is really, really solid. In my opinion, there's a couple of the facial renderings that I don't think quite are up to snuff. Uh, but other than that, I think it's really, I think it's good storytelling. I think it's good pacing. Uh, and I think, again, this is, you know, top-notch Herb Trimpey. So I'm going to say a B-plus on the interior art. And the story itself, 
I think the amb ambiguity that I'm seeing is intentional, so I can't really criticize it for that at all. I think it's it's edgy and it creates the desire to come back and visit this character again to find out what he really is all about. So I'm going to say a B plus on the uh, story as well, and I'm going to give the book overall an A minus. You want me to go? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I actually, I, I in general agree with your grading. I would, I would, I would give the book, I would give the book an A minus more for the artwork, which I think is gorgeous. Um, the Gary Friedrich is a fine scribe. The, the pacing, the plot is very strong. I think the dialogue doesn't hold up well. Reading it now in 2018, um, I, I find it a little, a little stilted and uh, hyperbolic in ways that I don't think. Uh, translate well. It, it didn't detract overall from my enjoyment of the story, but um, that that would give it, I would give it an A minus uh, grade overall as well. Bill, um, hmm. yeah, there's a couple spots in the art that it looks a little um, uh, like the one where he's talking to Satan. Oh, where is that? That's down here. Where he looks kind of like indifferent, like almost like a cartoon character ish, where they're standing face to face, kind of. You're talking on page twenty one. Uh, yes, top, top photo. Yeah, that top one. I'm not really fond of that one, um, but overall, uh, I would give the art probably like a like a B plus, uh, and the story. Um, yeah, it's a little wordy, but sometimes we kind of let that go. We try not to, like, I try not to rate it on what I would think today too much. If I was reading it off the stands, I try to think about back when it was when it was originally released. Um, uh, the cover, yeah, that it that is a different shot. The way they're the way the horses are going away, yeah, that isn't something we no normally see. Um, yeah, because usually you'd have a coming at you um so the cover i'm i i think overall i'm going to give uh the whole book a b plus okay I, I think if you if you look to the cover of issue 13 that's a far more traditional view and that's kind of what i would have expected for this but i'm i'm happy with what we got uh we might as well uh, move on to the second book then uh that would be uh that would be you chris all right power man and iron fist issue 75 all right. Uh, the cover date is uh, November of 1981, so that means it came out uh, probably the late summer of, of 1981. Uh, you've got the writer is the wonderful Mary Jo Duffy, one of the most uh, underrated writers, writers from this time period. Uh, the great Carrie Gamble is penciling, Ricardo Villamonte inker, Jim Novak letterer, uh, C. Sheila – that might be Kristen. I'm not sure. Colorist. Denny O'Neill's editing and Jim Shooter's editor in chief. Uh, Chris, but, Chris, real quick, yes. sorry, sorry to interrupt. Kerry Gamble, what's his relationship, or is it? Am I thinking of the wrong person to John Byrne? You're thinking of John Byrne's stepson. I don't think that's Kerry Gamble. I think that's Kieran Dwyer. That's it. Okay, because yep. this artwork looks to, to me through here is very reminiscent of, of Byrne for me. But there, there are a lot of shots that I, I see that in. I agree with you on that. Okay. All right. We sorry. Also, no, that's so pleased. That's great. We also remember that Byrne did a great one with Chris Claremont on Iron Fist 
mm-hmm. the bronze age. So that 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 may be right. That's why it was so confusing. I'm like, this a lot of this in certain shots looks so much like like it was done by John Byrne. Yep. No, I understand that. Um, so the cover, the most requested story of all, Return to Kunlun. And uh, I remember when I, when I was a kid, I mispronounced Kuen Lun. But um, and uh, the the actual title of the story is "This Insubstantial Pageant Faded." All right, so a little bit of background. So, because this this is the original copy for, I got when I was a kid in 1981, and as I'm sure as we can all relate to, in 1981, I hadn't discovered comic shops yet. There weren't that many around yet. So, comic books for me were where you could find them, often at a Convenience store, spinner rack, or a flea market, um, and you know you couldn't consistently get usually issue after issue each month. It was ever happened to be on the rack when you walked in. And when my parents would always grab me books whenever we went to go out. I think we got this one at the at the uh, now lost uh, Hubbard Cupboard convenience store, which is in central New Jersey. And um, I knew nothing about Power Man and Iron Fist. Nothing. I, I knew about Power Man because I had a book of his from the earlier Bronze Age that, that I had got from my cousins, Iron Fist, I'd never seen before. But the cover, this stunning painted cover, you know, unfortunately they had the Columbia 10-speed racer thing at the top, which kind of detracts from it a little bit. But mm. you know, the cover really struck me. So Is as a that Doug Larkin? I think you're right about that, Paul. I was wondering who painted this, but I think you're right about that. Well, you keep talking. I'll look it up. Great. So – the cover grabbed me, you know, let's see, in 1981, I was eight years old, so really struck me. And plus it's a, it's a thicker comic. It was 75 cents, and this was a double-sized issue, which is always was always a kid. What a thrill when you got, you know, sort of more bang for your buck. And uh, I, I took it home, and I devoured this book repeatedly for the years to come. I still read this story at least once a year. Um, to me, this is a perfect example of... Knowing nothing about these characters, and you can pick up this book, and you learn all the essentials. And that shows what a great writer Mary Jo Duffy was. And as I got older and I started to really explore these characters in the history, I realized how much she put into this story to sort of catch people up on the, sort of the dynamic of Power Man and Iron Fist, especially the history of Iron Fist himself um, with Kunlun and Lee Kong and you know UT, the august personage, and Jade and uh, you know all of that and – you know the whole Shangri-La feeling of of, of Kunlun, and you know I'm, I'm not going to go through every aspect of the story because I don't want to spoil it too much because I want people to read this because I think I think if you if you've watched the Iron Fist show on Netflix and that's a whole other discussion, um, <laughs> and, and and if you've watched the Luke Cage uh, show on Netflix, I think you would get a lot out of this particular comic because it, it's it's about Danny and, and Luke ending up back in Kunlun. As, as we all know, probably that Kunlun only appears on Earth from another dimension every, I think it's ten years. Yes. Correctly, so they, they happen to, to be at the portal at that time, and uh, they end up back in Kunlun. And, and Danny hasn't been back since he first left it, but back in when he first appeared in, uh, I think it was Marvel, it's Marvel premiere. I want to say. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're you. correct on that as well. And. Mary, Mary Jo Duffy did wonderful work on this book. She also did wonderful work on the Star Wars comic um, in the 1980s. And she's an outstanding writer. I don't think she gets all the, the credit and attention she deserves. In fact, in the, in the last Paramount Artifice book that was done by David Walker and um, – oh, hell, Murd. Who was the artist on uh, – he's a fan of our show. What's that? Sanford Green. Sanford Green. Thanks, brother. Um, 
my apologies, Mr. Green, for brain farting there for a moment. They actually referenced Mary Jo Duffy in that book, just you know, to show you know they they, they were acknowledging the history. And what's great about this story is they give you the entire history of Kunlun. Basically, they they kind of revisit and expand upon you know Danny's uh, uh, origin, what happened with his, his parents when they came to Kunlun, how he was trained, the politics of Kunlun, um, and what the Iron Fist actually means to the city. And how Luke Cage and some amusing scenes, how he tries to fit into this sort of Shangri-La uh, environment. And then, of course, that they really go into sort of the dark political underbelly of the city and what's going on behind the scenes. I always love stories like that that kind of peel back the, the facade. And uh, we're introduced to the Hill Three. Unintroduced, but the, the, these are the vegetable-like creatures who uh, are enemies of uh, Kunlun. And uh, they explore what happened to Iron Fist's sister. Uh, and also they introduce not introduced they have Master Khan who's one of the one of the great uh, sort of nemeses of Power Man and Iron Fist. Uh, this book is the art. Cary Gamble. I, I haven't seen much of his work. This art is gorgeous. Uh, there's scenes in the latter part where Iron Fist battles a myst, like a mystical ninja employed by Master Khan. The combat scenes are tremendous. I mean, just the way he tells the story through the martial arts uh, action shots. Beautifully paced, and this guy was a top-notch artist. I, I think he's still living, actually. But um, again, this this is a great example of sort of even though it's it's coming out of the uh, Power Iron Fist story uh, issues, like it, it's not just it's referencing things that have happened before. But it's it's the kind of book you don't see much today, where you can just I, I'm an eight-year-old kid. I picked this up off the newsstand, and I was instantly taken in by it. And after this, I wanted to read every Power Iron Fist story I could get my hands on. So, uh, you know. The uh, Duffy Gamel team really did their work here uh, quite well, and uh, you know Marvel in the '80s was, I think, a very exciting time for the company. They were doing a lot of interesting, innovative things, from graphic novels to the Epic Illustrated line to um, you know continuity still mattered in the '80s. It wasn't that long from the Silver Age, so they still were referencing for those wonderful editorial boxes you really ever see before events that had happened in the past. And when you read books as a kid, as I was from Marvel in the '80s, I really felt immersed in that world. And I really wanted to learn the history because it was still very accessible, where today it's very difficult, I think, to do that. Um, so this this is a treasured uh, book from my childhood. And as I read it now as, as a middle-aged man, to me it still holds up as, as a great example of, of you know what the, the American comic book can achieve. And also, I, I, you know, frankly, also I, I'm such a sucker for like that because Iron Fist came out of like the the kung fu craze of, of the early 70s. And uh, which has some silly stereotypical, you know, aspects to it, but that permeates the character too in a way because that's part of his, his his sort of his foundation. And you find like even the title, this insubstantial pageant faded. I mean, it's such a you know hokey like curio shop type <laughs> title. Um, but uh, Board, you know, borderline pretentious. <laughs> yeah, but but almost in, a, in a, almost in a way that makes you smile. Exactly, it's, that's where the character comes from. So you know. Uh, this is a treasure book. I look forward to hearing your guys' opinion. Yeah, I I think I'm going to follow your lead and not give too much of the plot away because I agree. If if somebody finds our discussion of it interesting, pick it up and read it. Um, what what first thing that that uh well first point is uh, I did look it up. Yes, it is Bob Larkin that did the cover. And uh, we met Bob Larkin at Eternal Con here a couple of years ago, and he's another gentleman, (laughs) real nice man. We inundated him with copies of Dazzler number one. 
<laughs> we all had a copy because we were we were. Uh, I don't think we realized he was there. No, I, and we I, were bringing it for John Romita Jr. Yeah, because he did the interior art in that issue. What happened was when Dazzler Number One came out, whatever year that was, seventy nine, say somewhere around there. Uh, I bought in hook, line, and sinker to this. This is going to be the next big thing. And I think, you know, I think, I don't remember how much it was for a copy, maybe 50 cents. And I, I brought like, you know, $5 and I bought 10 copies of it because this is going to be the next big thing, you know? Uh, so when we were going to Eternal Con the night before, I had the guys over here, uh, for a barbecue and we, I was showing them where I keep my books and somehow that book came up. So I, I said, well, you know what? John Romita Jr. is going to be there tomorrow. Here, everybody take one copy of it for yourself and get him to sign it. So, as it turns out, John Romita Jr. was not there that day, but Bob Larkin was, so he he signed everybody's cover, which he had painted, and that is actually another beautiful painted cover. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think this is, I, I really like this cover as well. I mean, I, I like the uh, the foreboding figure in the background, the plant, anim- plant creatures that are uh, surrounding them. Just the look on Luke's face is just great. Um, and we just finished doing a, uh, retrospective on the, uh, Celestial Madonna story. Oh, and wow. so, so we're, we're dealing with the Kawadi and then we got walking plants here that are, uh, <laughs> that are aggressive. So it's kind of, men, whatever yeah, it's they kind, are. it's kind of cool in comparison. Uh, I, I really did like, I like the fact that they used Luke as our point of view character. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So they were able to do a lot of the exposition without having it to have it seem heavy, heavy handed because he's totally new to this whole experience. So they have to explain to him what's going on and it feels natural as they're going through it. Uh, so I thought it was very well written, very well laid out. It is a longer story. It's probably about the story itself, I guess, is probably about 35 to 40 pages long. So, you know, like you said, double length. Um, and there's a lot of twists and turns, and you know, you, you, there is, and I think it was legitimately up until this point that Kun Lun was was presented as Shangri La, as you said, uh, yeah. And and I think they, you know, took the sheen off of Shangri La in this in this issue, and I think they did it in a really good way, so that the story closed out, and you feel like the story is over, but you know there's more story to tell, and that it's going to be, you know, you you know you're going to be back there again eventually. So I, I think, you know, they left a lot of room for, for more stories as well, which is always a nice thing. What, um, what did you think of the, what did you think of the power, like, what did you think of the power and iron fist dynamic in the story in general? You know what? I, I might think that's one of the areas where it actually lagged a little bit. Uh, I think at this point, you know, they I think they started teaming up in issue 48, if I remember correctly. So they had about 27 issues as partners under their belt. And I think they had already established the relationship pretty clearly over the course of those 27 issues yeah. or so. And because of that, they had the freedom now. They had earned the freedom to have Danny go into Kunlun and be, you know, like, this is my old home and I'm meeting up with the people and I'm, I'm doing my thing and I'm leaving Luke behind while Luke is investigating and figuring it out himself. Until we got to the final climax of it, I didn't really feel a lot of the dynamic between them. But then at the end, you, you know, it does when it, when the story all wraps up, I think you do feel it again. Yeah, I, I, and I agree with you that, 
using Luke as the POV character here for the audience was was, was an outstanding uh, uh, device for the story because this is a very alien world to the reader, and uh, and and Luke is finding out with us what's really going on, but be you know underneath sort of that glittering facade of this Shangri La type uh, society, and uh, I think Duffy is Duffy is an outstanding writer of dialogue. And she really captures the different characters' voices. Like Luke, like this is my first real experience of how Luke Cage talks, and he's like I had such a distinct voice of his in my head ever since. And mm. uh, you know the, the contrast with the way Danny expresses himself. Like there's a great scene where well, there's one scene where they're they're talking in a, a, a fountain, and Luke's getting his par. She takes some water, and Luke says, "Danny says, no, you can't drink from that fountain. It's not the way." And you know, Luke kind of cracks wise, and uh, you know it. it they always remind that these are this is a very odd team. They come from such different worlds, yet they form this brotherhood. And um, you know, when you when you we would, not to get off too much track, when, when you watch the Defenders on Netflix, and uh, I've talked on, on our own show CGS about my feelings on the Iron Fist show, and I, I'm actually a little more merciful towards a lot of other people. Um, but I think that in the Defenders, when they put the two actors together. I think you start to actually believe – I believe more in, in that actor playing Iron Fist in the scenes when he was with Luke Cage because they seemed to have a spark and, and that, that some of that dynamic came out. Um, and I thought the Iron Fist character came to life more in the presence of, of Luke Cage. Also, I think he was just being forced to act with people who were just far better actors than him. So, uh, mm. But uh, to me, what I loved about this story and I love about every story I've read of the two characters since because I've read much of the series over the years and individually is just the, the the bond between them and how they're so different yet they find that that brotherhood between between them. I think that I, Luke's dialogue in this book is better written than most of the people who wrote Luke in this era. I think uh, a lot of the early Luke Cage books kind of jump out at you as you know it's it's a white guy trying to figure out what a black Harlem guy would sound like and, and, you know, just really doing the stereotypical, you know, I don't know that they were failing miserably at it, but just, you know, really just highlighting the stereotype. We also Uh, have to remember that. I'm sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Well, just in this, I I thought his dialogue sounded much more natural, even though she did manage to stick in a Christmas, not a sweet Christmas, but a Christmas. You got to have that. Yeah, at some point, but but you know she, it, it wasn't heavy-handed, and I also liked the way he was written in that because he's a streetwise kind of guy, he's walking around. He's like a little skeptical to begin with, so he kind of sees that underbelly. I think from the start. That's a good point. So I I just think he was well written in it. I, I think the whole story overall was well written, and I think some of the twists and turns in it, some of them you see coming because I think you're supposed to see coming. And some of them, I think, are are well hidden. I also remember that Luke Cage, his 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 foundation is a black exploitation character. Um, when he first appears in the early seventies, I mean, that's very much the age of Shaft and and you know Foxy Brown and all these films. And, and Marvel is definitely trying to cash in that, just like they're trying to cash in on the Kung Fu craze with with Iron Fist. Um, but I think both characters have since you know transcended essentially their origins when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm hogging. I'm sorry. What, what do the guys think? Uh, I would have liked to have seen an Iron Fist with this amount of kung fu technique in the actual Iron Fist show, <laughs> instead of just a lot of standing and and preening and and meditating. 
Maybe well, a that was that was one of the criticisms I heard of the show was that uh, it you know for somebody anybody who knows martial arts and I'm not one of those people, but then anybody who knows martial arts could see that Iron Fist did not look natural doing the moves that he was doing, and that the people he was fighting against actually looked much smoother and more natural, and that you know it looked like if it was real they would be beating him. Well, I, I from what I read, to be fair to the actor, I, th- I don't think he was given a lot of time to prepare. Well, yeah, yeah, he was thrown in, into it pretty quickly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Finn Jones. So, I mean, it's yeah. Mm. I mean, he has the general look of Danny Rand as far as physically, but you know, I, I'm not sure that he was. I'm not sure that they couldn't have found a better casting choice on that one. Maybe a stunt double who could new kung fu. <laughs> More martial arts. It's amazing what they can do with editing nowadays. <laughs> well, I concur with Bill, though, because when you look at uh, my – they don't have page numbers, but when he's fighting the ninja in the climactic oh, yeah. scene, the, the, the action sequences are phenomenal. I mean, what pacing. We've got mackerel. no scenes anywhere near that in Iron Fist or, or really in the Defenders. I mean, that one where he's on his back – well, not even on his back. He's on his hands, kicking straight up in the air and in the ninja's face. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean – yeah. You know, there's, it's it's a very, very well-drawn fight sequence. And and I think sometimes I tend to gloss over that and not give it the credit that it's due because I think very often we see fight sequences that don't have the same dynamism of this. And because of that, I'm used to not seeing it. So I, I kind of, like I said, I gloss over it when we don't have it. And sometimes I flip by it too quickly and I need to on a page like this, the one that's that's kind of the montage page, I need to just stop on that and, and look at each individual image closely because uh, it's it's rendered with care and it deserves the attention. It's like a ballet. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And we have to remember that you know, martial arts uh, depicting martial arts fighting in comics, I mean, we have to give a lot of credit to Frank Miller with, with Electra. I go back to Daredevil 181 and the classic fight between her and Bullseye, which is still one of the greatest, you know, sort of displays of violence I've ever seen in a comic. Um, and but this this is right up there too. And I concur. The montage pays you, as you mentioned, Paul. You just go from like the way. Look at how Gamble paces from one move to the next as your eyes follow from from the sequence, the flow of the fight, um, and going down to the bottom where Iron Fist, you know, has the sword against his his throat. Uh, or the preceding page where you watch the ninja elbow him in the, in the throat, and it, it's this is dying. This is masterful storytelling, and uh, from a visual sense. And while at the same time as he's doing that, he's got the the hordes of uh, people <laughs> surrounding Luke, and him just you know tossing them around like rag dolls, and he manages to stick that in and never make you feel like you're missing the action in the other sequence. Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Bill, what was your impression of the story in general? I had not read this before, so and I was a little bit pressed for time, so I had to do one of those skimming along. So understood, I'm, understood. I'm, I'm going to go back later and try to give it a, a the 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 read the read that it deserves. Um, I really like the 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 opening page with the giant jade tiger leaping <laughs> out and con con see i i knew somebody had to do it <laughs> i was gonna do it earlier but i didn't want to interrupt your synopsis so you're gonna i'll just save it for later so um i i, pre- I appreciate that reference sir <laughs> uh yeah this is this is uh it's, there's so much in this book 
but it doesn't i mean and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean this this is this this kind of goes you know paul where we were saying uh cuz in a recent show we did we covered two brand new books um compared to our where we usually cover the older books and we were comparing and contrasting to um uh the stuff we did with the slush of madonna and how we were saying like that was so late laden down with exposition and dialogue and and just compared to new books which a lot just fly by but this is kind of like an like a happy medium because you know we were saying i was like where did where did they become kind of even between story and art instead of just big splashes with a little bit of dialogue and we just you pay your 3.99 for your 17 20 page book and you're done in five minutes i I respectfully disagree with your characterization No, I, I, I get your point, and I don't disagree with your point, but I think there is a tremendous amount of story in here. I don't oh, think I'm not it's, saying there I don't think it's but it doesn't about. feel it doesn't feel like in the Celestial Madonna it almost felt overwhelming to try to even read through some of the stories. But I think there's just as much story here as there. I just think it's better paced. Okay. All right. That's what that's that's what I'm saying. Like it's not I don't think it's that that they you know, increase, decrease the story slightly and increase the art. I think they have this, just as much story in here. The artwork jumps up a level, certainly, compared to what we saw in the Celestial Madonna storyline. Um, but the the story, I think there's so much going on in this story that, you know, it, it, it's this this is a, a jam-packed book as far as what's happening. But I just think it's very, very well-paced to the point where, you you know, you don't, you don't feel like you're being overwhelmed by it. Uh, I could, I couldn't, I concur wholeheartedly. I, I mean, I'm looking here at the, at the where they, they give you the whole, basically, origin of Iron Fist of Danny Rand because there's multiple Iron Fist, but the da- of Danny Rand over so many pages. Um, there's no page numbers, but uh, where they tell you everything that happened to him, what happened to his parents, and I agree. It, it, you, it's never, it's never a chore to read this. It's so well paced. And Duffy is just a masterful uh, scripter. Um, this this rivets me as much now as a forty five year old man as I when I read it as an eight year old, and that's saying something. There's plenty of books from when I was a kid that I you know I struggle with today when I return to them, but not this one. Uh, and and I mentioned to people that you know, and we talked Bill Burfus before. Claremont Burns did a great run on Iron Fist in the late seventies. That was also continued in, in Marvel Team Up, a couple of key mm-hmm. issues, which. And they reference that here too because uh, Lee, yeah. Lee Kung's son uh, Davos, the, the Steel Serpent Murd. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why I'm answering when you say Murd. I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> um, they they even refer to that battle that occurred in in, in Marvel Team Up. And uh, Iron Fist wasn't around that long by this point, but he already had a pretty rich history. And uh, I, I would then recommend to people jump ahead to the. What I consider the classic uh, Brubaker Fraction uh, Aja Immortal Iron Fist, which I think is one of the best comics of the previous decade, um, and that also really explores further this history. So it, it's all connected and connected in, in by very skilled creative hands. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, is there any? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, Maybe one of you might know this. This uh, these plant creatures. Let me see if I could try this. The Hylithri. I don't know how they're pronounced. Uh, is it, I assume they 
Heard you always say Hill 3, don't you, Murd? Hill 3? Um, I'd always said Heil 3, but uh, Hill 3, now that you mention it, does make a bit more phonetic sense. Okay. <laughs> go ahead, now, Paul, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it, do, do either of you know where they go from here and what, you know, what kind of history they, gave, they were given? Or, you know? I, I was just thinking, uh, I, but the thing that most excited me about uh, hearing this review was learning that this was the first appearance of the, the Hill 3. Uh, because uh, I, I can remember reading uh, sometime in the mid to late 90s, like a three-issue Iron Fist miniseries, uh, which introduced me to a lot of the uh, secondary characters uh, from the Iron Fist mythos that Chris had been talking about that also appear in Power Man and Iron Fist number 75, like U.T., the August Personage of Jade, Lei Kung, the Thunderer. Uh, we even see a depiction of uh, the, the dragon Sholao the Undying. Uh, 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 yeah, the, the Hill 3 did have a sort of a minor role to play in that miniseries. And I thought, oh, cool, walking topiary people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Paul and Phil, uh, they're, they're like a bellicose version of the Kotati, uh, well known to uh, students of Avengers lore. So, um, yeah, so now I know where uh, that element of the uh, Iron Fist mythology came from. Although, Murd, I'm not sure if this is their first appearance. We're trying to confirm that, actually. I may have misspoken there. Um, I'm on the Marvel database. I I actually, I just, I, while you were talking, I opened up their page. It says first appearance, Iron Fist number two. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. So mm. they have even deeper roots than we knew. And you know what? I can now visualize that cover now that you mentioned it, Paul. So, okay, yeah, okay. So I, I cannot. Yeah. <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah, those, those Bronze Age Iron Fist stories, especially the Claremont. Now, Iron Fist was created by uh, Roy Thomas and Gil Kane. Um, but, but it. Bird and Claremont had, a, had a, a nice run with the character, first in Marvel premiere, and then, and then Iron Fist briefly had his own book um, in the late Bronze Age. And then, as you mentioned, uh, they brought him into the, the Power Man book, and then the, the, the number just continued with Power Man and Iron Fist. So now, just I'm going to throw, I'm going to take us on a slight detour and throw out to you uh, just a thought process that we talked about when we did the uh, Celestial Madonna story again. Uh, there's a point in there where they talk about the history of the Kotati and how uh, the Cree kind of massacred them, uh, and then they were being grown, for lack of a better word, uh, in like basements to, to protect them. And I opined that it's possible, knowing that the uh, the Marvel staff at that early 70s era was known to be uh, occasionally indulging in things they shouldn't be, that the Kutati might be a substitute for marijuana. And, and I'm curious as to what the two of you might think of that. Oh well, it, it's it's widely known, and uh, that several of, of sort of the the phase two, the newer creators. I mean, these are all great creators. People like uh, Steve Engelhard, Jim Starlin, um, Tom Sutton. Uh, I, I'm you know, there's so many others. Uh, uh, oh God, uh, who did uh, Doctor Strange? Tremendous artist. Golden. Oh, Frank Bruner. Frank Brunner, yeah, yep. all these guys. I mean, some, we, some of them have spoken very openly about, you know, they were indulging in uh, various psychotropic substances, and that's what also inspired some of the great work they were doing. Um, so that 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 I would that sounds very plausible. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. Hey, hey, man, don't bogart that Kutati. <laughs> I, you know, I had read those books as you know, as a, a whatever, an eleven-year-old, a ten-year-old, whatever I was when they were coming out, and. You know, that aspect of it was totally lost on me for obvious reasons. <laughs> and it's something that didn't occur to me until now, you know, in my mid-50s, 
And I just find it incredibly amusing to think about that as a as a possibility that that's where they were going with it. Now these guys, I mean, that was a I was actually Engelhart who wrote that, and he was probably in his early twenties at that point, which would put him in the perfect age to be writing a story of that nature. Yeah, it's it's very likely. If you read Marvel: The Lost, uh, Marvel: The um, what's that history called? Uh, I, I know exactly the book you're the talking untold, about. The Untold Story. Uh, which is which is wonderful. The, the, the author who we interviewed on the show many years ago, actually, he, he goes into all that a little bit. So, yes. um, I, I hate to be a killjoy, guys. I have to leave soon because I have to deal with my kids and, and do a couple of things before I go to bed. I apologize for that. Um, I hope you don't mind if, if I, I give my rating and so forth. Sure. No, absolutely. You got to do what you got to do. Well, I also got to get up at dawn and teach. Um, I mean, obviously, no one's going to be surprised. This is an A for me all around. I mean, the cover is Bob Larkin. These painted covers, gorgeous. Uh, I mean, it, the fact that I this I grabbed my eight-year-old hand, snagged this right away just on the power of the cover. That says it all. And the interior, I'm such a huge fan of Cary Gamble. Although I, I, I haven't seen much of his work, uh, he worked on this book a little bit. A little bit besides this issue, uh, beautiful. I, I agree with Bill. Is definitely definitely see the burn influence. Maybe maybe he was trying to show continuity between what had come before, perhaps. That's just a guess on my part. But not, it doesn't take anything away from Gamel himself. I mean, this is gorgeous artwork. Uh, and but Mary Jo Duffy to me is such the hero of this book in terms of the scripting, capturing the voices of the characters, uh, really doing a wonderful job in terms of the pacing, working with Gamel uh, to bring us you know the history of Kunlun and and again to catch a new like me my uh, my eight year old new reader. Into, to bring me into this world to make me want to buy more books about Power Man and Iron Fist, so they did their job all the more because I still love these characters. You know, what is it? Thirty over thirty-five years later, so hmm. uh, a, a a all around. I'm I'm going to just agree with you on that. And the only issue I have with that at all is I'm not sure if there's any points where I might give it an A plus as opposed to just an A. Uh, and I think one thing we, we were a little remiss on is not mentioning, uh, I'm not really familiar with him, but Ricardo Villamonte as the anchor in this book also did an excellent job. Tremendous. I, you know, some of the detail work here, which I'm sure is his, uh, is just really, really well done. And I, you know, I, I, I try to pay attention to inking more than I did as a younger reader. And more often than not, I find myself critical of it on this show. And when I find a book like this where I think it's really, really well inked, I, I really want to make a point of saying that. I'm glad you brought that up, Paul, because I was remiss. Because the when when you have the right team, it's so seamless you almost almost don't notice it because it's it's all everything's working in such perfect synergy, and you definitely see that here in this issue. I agree 100. percent So you have a rating on this? Uh yeah, I. I pretty much right there with you guys um and i'll i mean um it kind of brought something up back to my head that uh it was a little disturbing uh about a year or two ago i had a dream to where i was a um investigator in like victorian london investigating murders and Hell through the dream. course well through the course of the dream i found out i i, I was not unconscious and i woke up in a and a cellar, and there was an old woman, and she was growing plants out of my body. <laughs> and then, and then I woke up from the dream, and I was, I was, uh, I was laying on my couch, and I couldn't move. 
and then suddenly the woman it was a dream within a dream i psyched I, myself out because then the woman leaned over me again in my living room and she <laughs> she she said oh it freaked me out because then i woke up for real and i like flew off the couch and i was all freaked out so yeah so this, this is this book traumatized you a little bit a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, your, your life you know. is really a bad sitcom, Bill. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, uh, but even even with the trauma I'm reliving right now, I'm still going to give o- overall the book an A. Adam, you have anything on this one? Uh, it is a pretty cool cover. I must agree. Okay, fair enough. Uh if we move quickly on the third one, are you able to stay, Chris, or do you have to depart? Unfortunately, I cannot. I apologize, gentlemen, but 10 o'clock because I have to – it's it's dealing with the kids and different crap. Understood. Wife. No problem. No problem. Take but, uh, care Bird, of what you I have to. I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry we'll be able to uh, finish out the journey with you on this one. I understand, Chris, and besides, you can you can hear it all later. I look forward to that. And, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for the invitation. This was, this was a delight, as always. Thanks for coming on, Chris. I appreciate yep. it. It's always great to talk yep. to you, and uh, I look forward to our next chance. I, I look forward to it as well. Thank you, gentlemen, and have a fine evening. Take care now. See you later, Chris. Right. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Adam, the stage is all yours, my friend. I'm, so, I'm sorry that you've been underplayed to this point. Oh, it's as much my fault as anyone's fault. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't, don't accept blame so easily. All right, so, okay, that brings us to the 90s. Uh, Okay, and what I bring to the table is my old copy of The New Warriors, number 27, cover dated September of 1992, which means it was released right in midsummer, probably July of that year. Uh, And as you can tell by looking at the upper right-hand corner of that front cover, uh, which is drawn by Mark Bagley, incidentally, uh, it is an Infinity War crossover. And that's the main reason why I chose uh, this particular issue, because uh, Infinity War is uh, a household word these days. It's on the lips of geeks everywhere as we uh, hotly anticipate the latest Avengers movie, which is subtitled Infinity War. But this is the original Infinity War, which uh, was the big Marvel summer crossover of 1992, a follow-up to the Infinity Gauntlet story. Um, It is also the story that got me into comics. For the first time, uh, collecting this miniseries and its many crossovers throughout the Marvel publishing line. I still have the little checklist card that yeah, uh, yeah. I acquired at my local mm-hmm. comic shop when I picked up my copy of Infinity War number one. And I did check it off dutifully. I even, uh, in my scrawling handwriting of the time, uh, wrote in uh, a few unannounced Infinity War crossovers that were eventually uh, added uh, to that slate. Um, so yes, this, uh, this was a big deal for me. I was 13 years old and I was just, this is the dawn of my uh, life as a comics reader. Um, and, uh, so my first little pile of comics that I ever bought included this, uh, new warriors crossover. Um, and as I mentioned, the front cover is drawn by Mark Bagley, who is, uh, up until recently had been the regular series penciler for the new warriors. Uh, he'd been replaced with Derek Robertson just the month prior to this issue re- being released, uh, but he had apparently Uh, continued to do cover art for a few issues after his departure. Um, And uh, the front cover, there's a little banner at the top that says, The Wildest Warriors Story Ever. And there are a couple of uh, bursts below that that say, You didn't demand it, but you got it anyway. Dark Speedball. (laughs) And as as, uh, indicated by those bursts, we have an image drawn by Bagley of uh, Speedball battling his dark doppelganger, Dark Speedball, or as he's called inside the issue itself, Black Ball. And he is indeed a, def- a, a demonic-looking 
twisted, dark reflection of Speedball himself. The, the dark doppelgangers were a fairly important uh, uh, plot point of the Infinity War crossover event, uh, and it was the thing that I, as a 13-year-old, thought was by far the coolest thing about the whole thing, You know, the, the, the Infinity Gems coming in close second. Uh, but the Dark Doppelgangers were dispatched by the main bad guy of the Infinity War crossover, the Magus. Um, he had uh, one of them custom-made. You know, He commissioned them, we learned from one of the other crossovers in the Quasar series, written by Mark Grunewald. Um, he went to a being called Anthropomorpho, who was responsible for creating manifestation bodies for all of the different uh, cosmic entities and conceptual deities uh, that uh, people, the upper echelons of the Marvel Universe cosmology, you know, like Eternity and uh, Infinity and Oblivion and so forth, they all go to Anthropomorpho to get bodies made for themselves whenever they need to manifest themselves to mere material beings, like Earth superheroes. So Magus commissioned Anthropomorpho to create dark doppelgangers for as many of uh, Earth's superpowered heroes and villains as possible. And the idea was he was going to to dispatch them uh, to uh, battle their opposite numbers on Earth and uh, defeat them and, if possible, possess them. Interesting visual. Uh, the, the dark doppelgangers, who generally look like, uh, oh, depending on who was designing them, you know, the, the quality of the doppelganger designs varied. But the general convention for them was that they uh, looked something like the hero or villain they were supposed to emulate, uh, but they had uh, long fang-like teeth. Uh, sharp pointed claw like fingers and the, the, the color scheme generally a bit uh, darker uh, in palette uh, and other little uh, touches could be added at the artist's discretion uh, some of the more creative ones included Spider-Man's doppelganger who had six arms like an actual spider making him eight limbed Hawkeye's doppelganger had kind of a beak like hawk like nose and then so forth um, but actually the ones that we see in New Warriors number 27 for my money are among the more imaginative uh, Black Ball here for example is uh, pretty cool looking. Um, so the idea was they, these doppelgangers were supposed to fight and uh, subdue their opposite numbers, and then they could reduce themselves to their original form, which is just this writhing mass of tentacles, wrap themselves around the prone form of the hero or villain they just defeated, and uh, form kind of a chrysalis around him or her, and then uh, sort of assimilate them. So that when the, the tentacles unwrapped, the, the, the tentacles would then be absorbed into the body of the defeated hero or villain, and that super being would then be in the thrall of Magus. In essence, the, the, the Magus is attempting to do uh, to uh, as many of the superpowered beings of Earth as possible uh, what he was never able to do with his own opposite number, Adam Warlock, namely uh, uh, absorb them into uh, his being and uh, bring them around to his philosophy and his, 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 his way of looking at, at the universe and uh, his uh, program of conquest. Um, so I, I always thought that those... Uh, I've always been fascinated by dark... Opposite numbers, sort of Jungian shadows of existing characters. You know, people like Venom for Spider-Man or Professor Zoom for Barry Allen's Flash. Um, mm -hmm. But this, uh, these dark doppelgangers are kind of a very pure, simplistic manifestation of the concept of Jungian shadows. They're literally, in, instead of these heroes encountering versions of encountering unpleasant truths about themselves as reflected in other unrelated characters. You know, they're villains mostly. Um, what, what they're dealing with here is that. Uh, beings that were literally formed from the extrapolation of, of, of the uh, dark, unpleasant truths of their own inner natures uh, that are then uh, manifested uh, and, and brought to life to battle them. And it so it almost reminded me of uh, Captain Kirk in The Enemy Within, mm. if you're familiar with, with that particular story, where he split into two parts and there's his good part and his evil part. Oh, all right. So we're not talking about Mirror Mirror. We're not talking about... No. Mirror oh, no, no, no. 
but you know that the eventually he needs to be put back together because even the good part is ineffective without the aggressiveness from the evil part and the way this is presented here i mean it isn't given you're not given that aspect of it but you are given that this is the dark side of their nature as opposed to just a villainous version of themselves right so i i, I don't know if that help, <laughs> helps the description at all but that's just how, how i saw it uh, sure, sure. Um, okay, uh, getting down to the, 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 the content of the issue beyond just the dark doppelganger angle. Um, the story is called Dark Sides, fittingly. Um, it's written by Fabian Nicieza, the original series uh, writer for the, the New Warriors, who stayed with it for a good long time, and uh, recently uh, uh, recently acquired a regular series penciler Derek Robertson. Uh, inker Larry Malstead, uh, colors by Kevin Tinsley, letters by Joe Rosen, edited by Dangerous Danny Fingeroff. Uh, and uh, it's a it's a small uh, quote a small look at an infinite war. Brought to you by the following. That's a little banner off the credits box on page nine there. Um, and it's primarily it's not really a new warrior story so much as it is uh, a couple of little subplots feature spotlighting speedball as seen on the cover and uh, the newest new warrior as of issue number 27 rage a character who'd been introduced by larry hama during his brief run on the avengers a couple of years earlier um in the, the was too young they said you're too young get out of here yeah well rage, rage is actually younger like his body is older than mm-hmm. he he's almost got the shazam thing going isn't that the case where he's he's yeah, but only he's much younger than he appears, and yeah. that they they were originally welcoming welcoming him to the event Avengers until they realized how young he was, and then they were like, eh, maybe you shouldn't be with the big boys just yet. Yeah, he was like a fourteen or a sixteen year old, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He was thirteen. So oh, that young. Okay, exactly as old as I was when I bought this comic book. Yeah, uh, but yeah, the, the idea was he was in. Uh, an inner city uh, kid who was uh, coming home from basketball practice and he was exposed to toxic waste somehow. And that mutated his body into the abnormally large, superhumanly strong adult form that he now wears. So it is kind of like a Captain Marvel or a Prime situation. Uh, difference being he doesn't have a magic word that can change him back. It's, it's more of a you know, the, the classic Marvel tragic monstrous prisoner in my own body uh, the character trope. Well, if you, don't have angst, if you don't have angst, they can't be Marvel characters. Why can't I get exposed to toxic waste? <laughs> Sorry. You just Oma. Oh, that's no fun. Yeah, I was I was by the microwave yesterday at work at lunchtime heating up my lunch, and somebody commented about the radiation off of it. And I said, I'm just waiting to develop superpowers. <laughs> Quick, Quick pa- spider in there. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to keep interrupting you, Adam. Not at all, not at all. All right, so the story opens with uh, Speedball uh, delivering pizza, because this is a 90s comic, and, of course, pizza was like the national food of the 90s. Uh, so he's bouncing along using his really cool kinetic superpowers. I always did like Speedball an awful lot. Uh, he was a relatively new character as of 1992, and I have heard that there are some people back in those early days of the New Warriors who actually went out of their way not to buy the series specifically because Speedball was involved. Quite the opposite for me. He was my favorite character in, in this book. 
Um, so Speedball is uh, – he's apparently the uh, big guns of the Marvel Universe have as low an opinion of him as a lot of fans did back then because they've relegated him to Pizza Delivery Boy. That was his role to play while all the heroes were congregated at the Fantastic Force headquarters discussing what to do about this Infinity War that was brewing, and they send Speedball to get pizza. And on the way back, uh, he sees uh, – uh, his uh, brand new teammate, who, as I mentioned, just joined. He, he uh, as you said, Paul, the Avengers eventually decided they were going to relegate him to like junior the uh, trainee status. Um, and as of uh, young uh, New Warriors number twenty six, uh, the Avengers had a guest appearance there. Uh, Rage kind of fell out of their good graces altogether and decided to just jump ship and join the New Warriors instead. And he also acquired a new costume at that point, as opposed to the one he had favored until then, which, uh, you know, going back to what you'd said uh, uh, about the Son of Satan comic, uh, the, the uniform, the traditional uniform of a gang leader or member in, in uh, comics in the Bronze Age was a uh, leather jacket with no shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, Rage was pretty much uh, uh, continuing that trend. Uh, his outfit was uh, a sleeveless leather jacket with no shirt, and his, his name on the back in, emblazoned in flaming letters, Matching leather trousers and a ski mask. So he was kind of being portrayed as a, a kind of super thug who preyed on other thugs. You know, he was affecting the, uh, the look and attitude of a gang member uh, to battle gang members. Um, but uh, he moved away from that as right after he joined the New Warriors. He got a new costume as seen in this issue. It's kind of green and gold uh, with a kind of a armored uh, gold shoulder pads and a gold helmet with a fancy triangle on the front. Um, and uh, what I'm going to call a peck flap. Uh, it, it's kind of like a boob window, except it's a, it, it's a flap of fabric that folds down from the top of his costume to reveal uh, his banging chest. Uh, uh, so the, the, this is a costume that was given to him by Speedball, apparently. Uh, and just as kind of a test of readers' memories, uh, here we are. It's the second issue. It's the first time we actually see him in action wearing this costume, and he's battling his dark doppelganger who's wearing his old costume, slightly modified. The rage word on the back of the jacket is backwards. Uh, his ski mask has been modified slightly, so it looks more like the facial markings of like a, a beast of prey. Uh, and uh, Speedball, <laughs> he's the one who gave Rage this new costume, and he doesn't recognize Rage in it, so he punches the wrong Rage. Um, and uh, the Dark Doppelganger temporarily gets away. But uh, Rage, you know, for a guy named Rage, he's surprisingly cool about what just happens here. He's, Fabian Nicieza does Rage more favors than his creator Larry Hama did, I think. He, he portrays him in this issue and in ones to follow in his New Warriors run. And Nicieza portrays Rage as a fairly level-headed, good-hearted, thoughtful young man. And uh, he and uh, Speedball engage in some light-hearted little badinage here, you know, bust each other's chops a little bit. And then Rage has his own little uh, Lacanian confrontation with uh, his, his dark doppelganger up on the roof of a building. And uh, somewhat atypical of the way the dark doppelganger thing was going, uh, was handled by other writers, other places. Um, the dark doppelganger doesn't get a chance to absorb Rage. Rather, Rage absorbs him. So Nicieza might be riffing off of that... Uh, was it, did, did the enemy within? Uh, that, was that the episode of Star Trek you were referencing, Paul? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So uh, rage instead, just uh, there's kind of a flash of light as the two of them run at each other in a symmetric panel, uh, a classic Marvel type image, and the two of them just kind of merge with one another. And uh, there are some mild consequences of that later in the issue. Uh, then there's a bit of an interlude as we see the uh, obligatory crowd scene. Uh, the, the, this is the title splash, uh, featuring a whole bunch of Marvel characters standing around uh, Four Freedoms Plaza, the Fantastic Four's headquarters at the time, um, making plans for what to do about uh, the Magus. Uh, although at this point, they don't, 
I don't think they're aware that Magus really is the mastermind behind the events of Infinity War. They think they're going to fight Thanos, uh, which is understandable because uh, the Magus is actually employing a duplicate of Thanos as a henchman. Merge, do you remember why uh, – I don't remember why the top of Freedom 4 Plaza is missing in the photo. What uh, – was it blown off in the Infinity War crossover? I think – it's either that or it's something that happened in the uh, the, the Tom DeFalco run of, of the Fantastic Four book. Uh, but I I want to say that it did have something to do with Infinity War number one. Um, I know I know at one point the Baxter Building well has been launched into space a few times, but this is Freedom's Four Plaza, so I don't think this is. I think that was in the eighties when that was done again with with Byrne mm-hmm. with um, Christoph uh, the 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 kid that thought he was Doom right actually tried to steal it. So, oh, uh, but you think it happened in Infinity War One? Uh, I, I think. Um, yeah, th- this issue came out uh, around the t- concurrently with Infinity War Number Four, so it might have happened sometime mm. in numbers one and four. Uh, but uh, something in me is uh, saying that it's a it, w- it was at this time a recent development. Um. So. Oh yeah, yeah because yeah, it says. Uh, uh, sorry, on the next splash it says and host to one of the largest assemblages of heroes ever seen beneath one blown up roof so yeah obviously this has happened recently sorry answered my own question sorry buggy all right and it's just a a couple of pages here quick interlude with the other quick check-in with the other members of the new warriors it as i said this is mostly a speedball and rage show but it's kind of uh, fabian nisieza riffing on the fact that uh his group of characters aren't really given very much to do in the Infinity War. Um, we get a quick, uh, there's one, a one-page scene of uh, Rich Ryder as Nova uh, getting in a few digs at his teammates, you know, lording it over them that he, you know, the, uh, the, the cosmic human rocket Nova is the one member of their team that was chosen to go into space. Because uh, uh, at this stage in the Infinity War story, the, uh, the assembled heroes were uh, splitting up into home and away squads. Uh, one team was just going to defend the home front, and the other was going to take the fight to, they thought, Thanos. And Nova was the only one that was, I guess, deemed cosmic enough by uh, Starlin and the people that were uh, working on the Infinity War miniseries itself uh, to be worthy to be a part of the away team. And he's kind of rubbing it in his teammate's face. And uh, Fabian Nicieza is kind of taking it in stride uh, he, he probably felt that his characters were being snubbed a little bit in this big event, and he's just kind of shrugs and uses it as an opportunity for a couple pages of character shtick. You know, uh, the, the team leader, Night Thrasher, just kind of brushes it off as saying, yeah, Captain America has got a grudge against us, referring to the events of the previous issue, actually, when uh, and, uh, team founder Marvel Boy was dragged off to the vault to await trial for the... Uh, uh, he was accused of murdering his own father, and uh, the, the New Warriors and Avengers ran afoul of each other as a result of that, and that's why they're on Captain America's shit list at this point. Uh, but yeah, it's just a little bit of a clowning around between the Avengers, Nova being the biggest clown of the group in this scene. A little bit of the romantic tension between uh, Nova and Namor's cousin once removed, Namorita. Yeah, the two of them were kind of an on-again, off-again, will-they-won't-they item throughout the uh, New Warriors run. And then we go back to Speedball, who bounces his way to his hometown of Springdale, Connecticut, finds that it's a war zone. Apparently, his dark doppelganger got there before he did. Um, he has an encounter with uh, an irate family of uh, Springdale residents who look a lot like the Simpsons on page 12. Uh, that This is still a timely reference because this is 1992, and you know, Simpsons were a fairly new thing at, at that time. Um, Speedball also tosses out a couple of other little 90s-isms. He mentions the L.A. riots, and he mentions MC Hammer. So, again, the 90s. 
Uh, he runs afoul of his own father, uh, Justin Baldwin, who is the local DA and uh, has a mat on for superheroes and costume vigilantes in general and Speedball in particular. This is a classic, uh, again, Marvel trope of uh, you know, a hero having a close family member who is hostile towards uh, his or her alter ego. Um, and it's a carryover from Speedball's short-lived uh, solo series, Speedball the Masked Marvel. You know, plot points of which uh, Fabian Nicieza carried over into the New Warriors. He's one of the better writers who have worked in comics in the past 20 years as far as you know, incorporating past continuity into current stories. doesn't get quite enough credit for doing that. Uh, so Speedball has an encounter with his dad and his armed forces. shows off uh, some interesting ways of using his powers, which and there's more to it than just bouncing around. Uh, he's, uh, he's basically a living bundle of kinetic energy, and if he focuses all of those nifty little... Uh, multicolored uh, dipping dots that uh, float around him all the time in the proper ways. He can actually uh, use them to create force fields, null fields, and even uh, concentrated blasts of kinetic energy uh, at times. Uh, we'll actually see him doing that before the end of this story. Um, then he realizes, uh, Speedball does, that his dark doppelganger may be menacing his mom while he's wasting time confronting his dad and his cuffs, so he bounces off to deal with that. Uh, cut back to Brooklyn, where Rage, having just absorbed his own uh, dark side, uh, encounters a bunch of uh, liquor store robbers and uh, goes a little overboard with uh, uh, subduing them, bashes them up pretty badly. Uh, he's actually uh, congratulated by uh, standers by for uh, having uh, been so violent with these kids, and uh, he realizes at that point that uh, this is not the kind of hero he wants to be. He's not acting like himself. Uh, this is a consequence of his having absorbed his dark doppelganger. He flees the scene, screaming no at the top of his voice, and he berates himself on a nearby rooftop. Is is this the answer, given to anger, to hatred, to rage? Is this the best way to help my people? And that right there is Fabian Nicieza taking advantage of the conventions of this Infinity War crossover, you know, really seamlessly incorporating the, 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 the requirements and restrictions of this crossover event to advance some of his own plot lines and agendas, uh, doing that very well. He's taking Rage a little further away from the uh, angry young man formula for creating African-American characters that was disappointingly prevalent in comics in the 70s and 80s. Um, so uh, Rage becomes much less an angry young man in this story as he you know, confronts his own anger, you know, personified, and uh, you know, makes peace with it. Uh, meanwhile, back in Springdale, Connecticut, uh, Speedball arrives uh, at his home just in time to save his mom from being menaced by his dark doppelganger, drawn with beautiful hideousness by uh, Derek Robertson. Um, he's got that uh, that dark color scheme going on, red hair instead of uh, Speedball's usual blonde. He's got this very snake-like face with a flattened nose and a, a dislocated jaw, big dripping fangs. He looks great. And those little uh, like multicolored uh, tutti-frutti Wonder Bread dots that uh, are used to represent... Uh, uh, Speedball's kinetic field. Uh, he draws those on uh, Blackball as kind of these angry little black squiggles with a uh, little bit of color overlaid on them. It's effective visualization for this uh, this dark side of Speedball's character. There there ensues a, a great Donnybrook between Speedball and his own uh, uh, worse nature. And uh, it, it concludes with uh, Speedball kind of expending his kinetic energy field by blasting um, the black ball into ashes, and uh, he's a little bit disappointed in himself. So we've got two different uh, confrontations with dark sides between uh, uh, Speedball and Rage, and one 
sort of makes peace with and incorporates, you know, integrates his dark side into himself successfully, whereas Speedball has to succumb to his own dark side to defeat it and is uh, much uh, less certain that he likes uh, the outcome. Uh, another interesting and important point of continuity, uh, at that moment, uh, as Robbie embraces his mom, he's he's re- reverted to his civilian self, and his father, the uh, crusading district attorney, walks in and uh, discovers his son's secret identity, and there's kind of a terse, very 90s-style Generation X versus Baby Boomer confrontation between Speedball and his law-and-order-obsessed dad, and uh, Speedball bounces away and saying something about how his father has to learn to accept who he is or else he will have lost his son. Uh, and then uh, Speedball and Rage catch up together on another, yet another rooftop, compare notes, and um, just uh, Speedball. it ends with Speedball bouncing away to buy more pizza. <laughs> now I I, uh, I didn't read a lot of New Warriors because this is kind of uh, this is at the point where I was just kind of getting back into comics after having stopped for a while, um, and I was you know I, I was only peripherally involved as far as knowing who these characters were, but. Uh, I thought there was a lot of good stuff reading this issue. I thought this was a pretty good choice. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is the typical introduction to the characters issue, because uh, it's kind of you're kind of being thrown in, thrust in in the middle of it. But I never felt lost reading it. Uh, it's interesting. I, you know, what's his name? Uh, Daniel Robertson, or not Daniel Derrick? Uh, I'm not familiar with him. I don't remember having seen anything by him at all, but he seems like an ideal artist to take over for Mark Bagley because his, his style is appears to be very similar in a lot of ways. So you could, you know, you can go seamlessly from uh, from Bagley to him without, you know, having readers be too bothered by it. Uh, I was totally oblivious until you just mentioned it about the Simpsons. I think that's just a a great visual that I missed, and I'm glad you pointed too, yeah. that out because that's that's just so cool looking when you when you see it and it, and once you see it, like once you pointed it out, it's so obvious. It's like how how now I can't unsee it. Okay. Uh, Good. So you know, there's there's a certain sense of humor to this issue that that I enjoyed. Uh, I, like I said, I think the artwork is good. The secondary costume for Rage, the new costume. In some ways, it looks to me like Guardian from the DC universe. Around the helmet, yes, absolutely. Because of the helmet, exactly. Uh, yeah, the actual uniform itself, not so much, but the helmet just makes, you know, that's what it's reminiscent of to me. Uh, and, and like you say, it's, in, it's interesting, the contrast of how they each deal with their dark side. And, uh, you know, it shows you that there, there are different ways to do it. Uh it 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 almost reads like a Malibu comic to me. I don't know if that sounds right, but uh, you know, like like the way Malibu, at least the way I saw it, was an upstart company that was trying to emulate Marvel and create a universe their way with all these new characters, and it almost feels like that type of an issue just put directly into the Marvel universe. You know, they they come along later and and they're you know they're all teenagers which is seems to be typical of the Malibu books that I read, uh, and you know you still have the same Marvel angst with 
you know, the father, the situation with the father and everything. Uh, but really, you know, very enjoyable read. I thought. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I, I, I just, um, uh, last summer when I went nuts going after back issues, the one store I told you about Paul, where they, everything was a dollar. All the back issues were a dollar. Mm-hmm. I pretty much picked up the entire, uh, this entire run for about a buck a piece for each, each issue. Um, so <laughs> I, and I haven't read them all. Of course, as you know, I've, <laughs> I bought a lot of comics last year, uh, that I've been, I uh, don't know when I'll eventually get to reading all of them, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I started to read them from the beginning. I haven't got to this point in my read. I'm only about about five to six issues in to the series itself, and of course that was a few months ago. But but I did enjoy this read, and um, um, I got a question though. Do you think Rage killed that one guy he threw into the window of that car? <laughs> Uh, I don't think he did. No, I'm. Well, I don't know. That's a uh, pretty hard. Uh, I mean, I obviously he didn't story wise, but in you know, uh, to be re- realistic, I probably yeah, yeah, I think that kid's dead. If this were happening in the real world, yeah, probably. But uh, in the Marvel universe, I'm sure he he wasn't killed because there would have been, knowing the way Nicieza writes, there would have been a follow up. There would have been repercussions to that, to, like a, like an ongoing subplot in which Rage had to deal with the consequences of his little rampage there. Either that or pay his medical bills. <laughs> Something. Even in the Marvel universe, you know he's going to need some hospital time. Oh yeah. I really, really like the uh, the splash page where Speedball confronts his doppelganger. I think that's really well done. Mm. Oh, with uh, the unhinged jaw and the sort of Nosferatu body language there. Mm. Yes, and and also what you pointed out uh, very ably the the difference between the Speedball bubbles and the doppelganger scribbles, which is just very cool. I, I just think you know the. There's sometimes there's little artistic touches like that or the Simpsons, which, uh, quite frankly, I, I I sometimes overlook them because I, I I love good artwork, but we've we've talked about this on the show several times. I'm as much as I love good artwork, I'm a story first guy. If we have really good art with bad story, I I, I get bored by it and I'm not interested. But if we have a really good story with bad art, I can get by the art usually to read it. So a lot of times when I'm reading it, I'm concentrating more on the story and where it's going. And I miss certain little things like that. And I'm always happy when when somebody points them out to me, as you just did, because uh, I think sometimes I just go through these too quickly. I think that's what it comes down to. Well, again, it is a 90s comic, and uh, it's uh, it, it sort of lends itself to quick reading. Uh, you know, uh, the other two comics we talked about tonight, uh, probably more substantial reads. I do have a habit of the, using food analogies to describe the things I read, comics or otherwise. And uh, while uh, Power Man and Iron Fist 75, Marvel Spotlight number 12, probably more like entrees, the thing I brought to the table is probably more akin to Dorito dust. <laughs> I don't know if it would be that harsh. Uh, I, I am being a little too hard. There are a lot of 90s comics that would have been. Dorito does, but this this is a little better than that. This is at least like a, a granola bar or something. Yeah, no, I, I think there's, there's not a lot of story progression 
but there's some there are some significant things that are going on. You know, again, you pointed out the uh, the contrast and how they each de- deal with their dark sides. There's the the whole aspect of him having so little respect from the heroes that they send him out to get pizza. There's the uh, the Nova thing, which I, I found kind of amusing, although I wasn't sure how accurate that is to the Rich Rider character. Uh, I'm thinking at the time it probably was accurate, but I just don't know. You know, I don't think they've maintained that type of persona for him. Yeah, uh, he his powers for a time, and I think that uh, that it maybe maybe gave him a few problems with self-image, actually, and with insecurity. So maybe he was uh, kind of playing the role of the uh, blowhard, experienced hero uh, in an exaggerated fashion to compensate for that. At this, mm-hmm. at this is it later? Is it later in this run, Murd, that he switches to the brown costume, or was it before this and he switched back to the blue costume? Uh, the brown costume was earlier. Uh, that, that was very brief uh, when Tom DeFalco first gathered this group of young characters together as the New Warriors. Um, he mm. actually changed Nova's name to Kid Nova, uh, I think to avoid confusion with the Frankie Ray character, who at that point had become Nova. The, uh, oh, yeah, the Herald of Galactus. But then he very quickly readopted the uh, more traditional uniform of the Xandarian Nova Corps. And, uh, yeah, the brown outfit didn't work. I mean, yeah. It well, they, works on Wolverine. They, they tr- you know, every once in a while they try new things just to shake it up a little bit, I guess. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. And when they shook it up with Speedball and they made him penance, penance yeah. uh, I thought that was a, an epic fail, to be honest with you. Yeah. That was a dark Speedball that I definitely did not I, I, I saw no need to do that to the character that's supposed to be very happy-go-lucky in how he's presented, yeah. and now you got to present him as a total dark side. But you know that's that's what twelve, thirteen years down the road for this, maybe more than that. Um, yeah, I think two thousand uh, was it five or six? It was at least thirteen years after this. But, yeah, at yeah, the yeah time- that was the precursor to Civil War, so. Yeah, so Fabian Nicieza was quoted as saying that he loved writing Speedball because it was so refreshing that there were at least a few of these long underwear types who really enjoyed what they were doing and you know battled evil as much for the joy of it as for anything else. And, of course, then when they did the penance thing after Civil War, they were pretty much <sighs> calculatedly uh, squishing that aspect of the character right out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fortunately, that that too passed, and uh, Robbie Baldwin was back in his speedball costume and resumed more or less his original worldview and uh, personality. Now, one one artistic thing I will complain about is I routinely detest uh, when Wolverine is drawn with the huge wings on his mask, the the way he is on uh, the montage scene with all the heroes. I just think that looks horrible. I was actually drawn to that. I, I like the way. Well, you really okay. So diff- different minds can can view it different ways then. Uh, but I I really I just don't see the utility of that. And I would think if anything, if you're wearing that, it would be very distracting if you're in a fight. You know, having having those wings flapping around while you're trying to throw a punch. Oh, that's his dress uniform. He only wears it to stand around in big groups of superheroes and smoke. Okay, we'll, we'll go. We'll go with that as the explanation. That'll work. But everybody, I think everybody else routinely in that shot looks pretty good. Now, is that when Thor was actually Jake? Uh, 
Uh, I thinking of Eric Masterson. Eric Masterson, yes, that's yeah, but what I meant. No, re- remember Thor did grow a beard at one point because his face was scarred in the nineties. Yeah, and he was, if I he was Jake Yarlgood, but that, but he was still Thor. Oh, I, yes, I, right. I, I was thinking, yeah, right. Sorry, but I'm talking. Adam, Adam, Adam is was, Adam is right. I'm talking about when he was Eric uh, Masterson, that when when he was th- basically Thunderstrike. Thunderstrike before he took on the name Thunderstrike, and everybody thought he was Thor. Uh, is that is that the Thor we have here, or do we know? It's. I think Thor had uh, become Thor again at that point, so that might just be bearded Odin's son, Thor. But maybe when he was still calling himself Sigurd Jarlson, I don't know. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But er- Eric Masterson became Thunderstrike right around this time. Okay, and Hercules looks considerably bigger than Thor, and uh, almost as big as Strong Guy. He's uh he's on a higher uh he's on a he's on a stool. <laughs> he's yelling across the room. So see he's like, "Hey, hey." <laughs> All right, well maybe not. "Hey, hey." But I he's, like I said, he's trying to yell to um Sasquatch on the next page. Yeah. That's yeah, that's it. Beer. I I do think though as as we started to this, to talk about, I think this is not your typical 90s book, though, because I do think there's a little bit more substance to it than a lot of the books we had. Uh, and I think a lot of the art in the 90s books that we complain about uh, and criticize is had had a rushed appearance to it. And I don't think that's the case here either. I think this, this art looks fairly well thought out, you know, story-wise. It's not a series of poster images uh, you know, we do have that one poster image in there, but I think it's an excellent poster image, so I wouldn't criticize it. Uh, so over, overall, I, I think this is, you know, we, we've talked on, in the past about how the 90s sometimes get a bad rap. That, yes, there was bad stuff that came out in the 90s, but that was a byproduct to some extent of volume that they were putting out so much that there was bound to be some of it that was just, you know, rushed and not so good. But I also think that there was a lot of quality stuff that came out in the 90s. Uh, Inf- Infinity Gauntlet and Infinity War, I both thought, think were excellent series. I do think Infinity War went a little too far on the uh, crossovers. I think that's you know that started a bad trend. Yeah, there, there were dozens of them, as my checklist will attest. And, you know, I bought every single one. Um, but, and, you know, I... I that was this was the beginning of my comics readership after Infinity War ended. Some of those series I continued to read, and some I did not. Um, but I saw plenty of examples of what you were talking about, Paul. The, the the rushed, hurried, slapdash, scratchy-looking artwork, and the excessive uh, splash pages and so forth. So uh, this, some of those crossovers were dreck. Yeah. Um, I thought so then, and I would think so even more now, I'm sure, if I reread any of those comics. But some of them uh, proved, we did show their creative teams in their best light, and this was certainly one of them. There's, uh, the New Warriors were one of the series that I ended up uh, sporadically collecting after Infinity War led up. So this this is an example of a a quality, mainstream 90s comic. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think you know the, the trend where I said you know this started a bad trend of the crossovers, uh, I think that really hit much more so when we got to the Infinity Crusade. Mm. I, I think a lot of the crossovers there felt very, very forced. And it was pretty much after that that I stopped feeling a need to read crossovers. You know, if it was a series that I happened to be reading already, fine. 
but I wouldn't go out of my way to read it just cause it, just because it was a crossover to that main event book. Well, you wised up early. <laughs> I guess either that or I got cheap. I'm not sure which it is. You never. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about how uh, you know the Bronze Age is my sweet spot spot, and I've I talked I've talked with Bill about this in the past. How uh, you know I value those books so much more than the new books that come out, and yet you know new books cost you know four and five dollars each, and meanwhile the Bronze Age books I'm picking up, and you know I have uh, my want list and everything, but I generally look to not spend more than you know two dollars on a book if I can help it. <laughs> so. I guess you know there there is a, a cheapness aspect to it, but there's also a uh, you know a, a value that I seek. I also see it as a challenge. You know, you're you're a bargain hunter, and it's it's fun. You know, perhaps we'll run into each other again at New York Comic Con this year. Uh, but it's fun to go there and, and see you know row after row of two dollar bins and have my want list with me and just be pulling out you know the books that I've been looking for. Uh, you know, at that at that price point, so you know there there is a a certain nirvana that you reach when you get into that kind of situation. I know the feeling well. Anyway, you, do, I'm sorry. Uh, were you gonna say something? No, I was I I, I was just agreeing. Um, yeah, because I uh, recently I told you I had went to another store that had the $2 bins and I dug, uh, I only need 12 issues of Marvel two and one to get the, uh, the first, that, that, that run, not, not counting the annuals. I need, I need about five of the annuals. So, so yeah, I'm only down to 12 issues of Marvel two and one. Now there is a Jim Starlin, uh, written and drawn, uh, Thanos related one that will be probably one of the more difficult ones to find. Um, Marvel two and one. Then you're not talking about the annual, are you? Yeah, one of the annual. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Two. That's one of the ones I don't have. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that one's gonna be nah, not easy. Yeah, well, that, that's the one that that crosses over with Avengers Annual number seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. that's 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 one of the seminal books of that era. So yeah, that will be a harder one to find at a decent price. Yeah, just like that Iron Man issue that introduced Thanos. I don't have that either in my Iron Man run. It's one of the ones. Uh, yeah, it'll be pricey if I ever doubt I'll ever stumble across that at a good price. Well, I, I think the only way you stumble across that is literally stumbling across it because somebody's selling a collection or whatever, and they have no idea that that's a significant book. Yeah, then I'll be that guy. Oh, I guess I could take the whole thing off your hands for, uh, you know, this much. Uh, taking a beating on this. Gimme, uh, gimme, give gimme, give gimme, 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 gimme. Oh, sorry. As the greed comes out. My darker half. <laughs> <laughs> your doppelganger is like a mirror image of the regular you. Nice. Bill has emerged and wrapped his tentacles around him. <laughs> All right. So, a- anything more to add before we rate this one? Uh, no, just uh, it's uh, well, as we've already said, this is uh, the, the new warriors in general, and this issue in specific are uh, all among those you know, buried gems of the '90s. It's uh, I-, I would recommend uh, fishing the, uh, the the first fifty or so issues of New Warriors at least out of the cheap bins if you get the opportunity. It's some quality storytelling and some really fine art. Uh, Bagley did the first two years worth, and Derek Robertson uh, came on and did uh, the second uh, two years worth. Um, 
and uh, the Infinity War. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the better. I mean, as I said, I've read dozens of Infinity War crossovers, and when I thought to myself, okay, this is says the Infinity War movie makes its way to theaters, I thought this would be a time to uh, tell the back to the bins readership a little something about my experience with the first Infinity War and why they should be more familiar with it than they are. And uh, of all the crossovers I read, this is whenever I think back on all those crossovers, this is one of the ones that uh, pops into my mind first. And uh, there's. I think having reread this, there's a good reason for that. So um, thank you guys for the opportunity to you know, trip down memory lane with you about this particular comic from my personal past as a collector. Well, thanks for coming here and, and going through it with us. I'm going to actually excellent give choice, Bert. Excellent choice. I'm going to give it my ratings. Uh, I think the cover is is pretty cool. It's 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 you know it's standard Mark Bagley as far as the individuals the positioning and everything this you know it's reminiscent of his, of his work on spider-man uh i think it's, it's very a very solid cover it's catching the cover scheme is cool especially when you contrast the yellow with the red hair on the uh black ball uh so I, i'm gonna say a, a solid b on the cover the interior art uh i have to add a half a grade to it just because you pointed out the simpsons to me uh so i was gonna say a b and now i'm gonna say a b plus and story-wise, again, for a 90s book, it reads quickly, but it, I think it's got some subtext and some things to make you think that take it above the level of average. And I'm going to say a B-plus on the story as well, and I'm going to give the book a B-plus. Um, uh, the cover for me is a solid A, because it, it's an extremely memorable image, because it's never left my mind uh, after the over 25 years since I saw it. I like the positioning of the figures. It's, it's a highly kinetic action image, you know, quite literally, because these characters have kinetic powers. Um, so A there, and an A-plus for the artwork, because, you know, it's... Uh, Derek Robertson, as, as you mentioned, it, it's, he's got a lot of the uh, Bagley strengths, but it's Bagley strengths alloyed with those of Kevin McGuire. A lot of the uh, facial expressions that uh, Roberts, uh, Robertson draws in here are really top-notch. Mm -hmm. And, of course, going back to that splash page with uh, Speedball and Blackball confronting each other at uh, the Baldwin house. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's splashy, big, action-oriented 90s art, but it's such good 90s art. I mean, reading this, I, I really got kind of a, a thrill um, it, it's, it's just so much cleaner and shinier than a lot of the comics art that I'm exposed to currently in 2018. So uh, big ups on the artwork there. Uh, Story-wise, um, it is kind of thin soup, but it's uh, it, it's flavorful, well-seasoned. Uh, you know, Fabian Nicieza is one of my favorite writers and has been since I first started reading comics. Um, uh, it, it's not exactly his Best work as a writer, but it's it's a it's a good solid issue. It it gives you, uh, you know, spotlight on a couple of my favorite characters in the New Warriors team. Um, so on balance, uh, you know, for different reasons, I think it averages out to about a, a B plus or A minus for me. Um, the cover, uh, nice Bagley. Um, what's odd is that compared. To the art on on the inside, I almost want to say that the um, the interior art is even more kinetic, and the way Speedball moves is even is drawn better in on the in, interior compared to the cover, at least for me. Um, but I'm still going to give the cover a um, like a B plus, A minus. The interior art. Um, 
is going to be a uh, again B plus A A minus. What's nice about the story is that even though it's you know it was probably mandated we need a crossover, you need to do this. It it's nice that they worked it in a way in into the story that the characters that, that it actually it kind of means something at least. And, and it's it's not just a crossover. It seems for the sake of a crossover, because uh, I seem to remember some of these. Because I was getting some of these when I was in the service, and some of the crossovers I don't have fond memories of, with some of the battles between the doppelgangers. But here it seems like there was there was a story driven purpose with the characters and how they each resolved their doppelgangers in different ways. So uh, I'm going to give the story actually a B plus. So overall. I'd say a minus B plus book for me. Yeah, so we're 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 all articulating different reasons for what we did like about it, but uh, we all still wound up in the same general area when we finished it up. So that's kind of cool. And uh, again, yeah, good choice, Meredith. And this this is one of the pleasures of doing this show. I think is every once in a while you get a book like this that you might not otherwise read, and you read it because of the random nature of the show and it, you know, and sometimes you find one that's, that's a gem that you don't know about. So gem in the rough. Yeah, exactly. And you know, so it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought this one out because I would have been fully unaware of it. My so, pleasure to play a prospector and uh, bring that diamond in the rough to you. <laughs> and, uh, it was our pleasure to have you on and I want to thank you for making the time to come on with us tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Paul and Bill. I've had a great time here tonight. And, uh, oh, you know, always, always. Yeah, with any nice. luck, we'll we we won't take so long before we find the time to get together with you guys again, because uh, this is this is always something I look forward to in, in the rare occasions we've been able to do it. Now, fingers tightly crossed, then that uh, our, our schedules will cooperate with us in the future. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, and I guess uh, that'll do it for tonight's show, everybody. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true freaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Good night, Mr. Robinson. <laughs>